Before we begin, I would like to uh, just publicly thank the Lord for the privilege of, of preaching His Word. There is, there is nothing better for a person to do than to speak the truth of Christ and to make His Word main, uh, be known to His people. Before we begin, I'd like to ask the Lord's assistance, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Spirit, we come asking that you would guide us. Father, we pray that your Son would be exalted and lifted up. And our Lord Jesus Christ, we want to thank you for dying for our sins, interceding for us, how you have done all things for your, for your Father's glory, and you have sent us the Holy Spirit to be comforting to us and to guide us into what is true concerning you. I ask that the word be made clear tonight, that the gospel be preached in clarity. We ask, Lord, that you would walk among your people. Help us to rest in your finished work. We pray these things for your glory, and we ask it in the name of our Christ. Amen. Amen. Breaching through the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ is, is a daunting uh, endeavor. I've never preached through the book before. I've read it many times and wondering how would I do this and now I'm I'm in the midst of it and so I'm just asking the Lord's help uh, for me to do this properly and hopefully it will be a blessing to you. When I began I told you that there would be a, a sprinkling of topical messages. It has been my uh, habit to preach through the Word of God verse by verse. But when it comes to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, sometimes we need a, a prep, a preparation, a little topic that we say, well, we need to learn something about perhaps the seal of God or perhaps about the temple of God or perhaps about certain things that we need to just kind of catch up on. And then when we get back into the verse by verse, it will make more sense to us. And so tonight I'm taking a, a topic and I'm going to call it the seal of God, the seal of God. I'd like to read from Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 14. And I'm just doing this so that you can have the context of what I'm going to look at. And the, the verse itself that we're looking at tonight is Ephesians 1, uh, verse 13. So let me read that verse first, and then I'll read it again in the context. Uh, chapter 1, verse 13. In him, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so, the idea of being sealed with the Holy Spirit is what I'm addressing. And I would like to now read this in the context so that we are not going to just kind of lift it out and uh, just uh, do something that we shouldn't do. So, verse starting with verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestinated us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, 
according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now there is a lot that can be said about this passage, but I would like to just kind of narrow it down so that we can actually achieve a goal, and that is the seal of God. It's God's guarantee that He will do what He promised. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And what is this promise? That we shall inherit all things in Christ. What, what is the centerpiece of all things? Well, it is God Himself. We will inherit the new heaven and the new earth, but it is God Himself who is our exceeding great reward. Now, we are continuing in the book of the, of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, but I want to consider the idea and what we finished this morning when we said Christ is the natural and moral authority to perform the will of His Father in executing all the decrees of God which were planned from the foundation of the world. Now, that's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> that was a mouthful. I'm going to read it again to you because I'm going to read it word for word because this will be important for you to understand when we get into the second vision. We'll be getting into the second vision pretty soon. We are continuing our consideration of the idea that Christ has the natural and moral authority to perform the will of His Father in executing all the decrees of God which were planned from the foundation of the world. So, before we get into this passage of Scripture and understand what it means that God sealed us with the Holy Spirit, I'd like to just ask the question, do you know what a seal really is? Uh, do you know what it means to have a seal placed upon a document or something? So, when it comes to modern-day understanding, you may have seen contracts or documents or even uh, documents that say that this is the law put into, into effect. It is like a signature that verifies the authenticity and the authority of something. So I know that sounds a little bit vague. And so, you know, so I'm going to try to clarify it. To let you know that uh, one way of misunderstanding this is when, is when I first heard this preached, I was a young boy, and uh, I can recall my mother making strawberry preserves, and she would cook up this big strawberry mess and pour it into these little jars, and then she would melt paraffin and take that paraffin and pour it over the jelly, over the strawberry preserves, and it would seal it, okay? You would seal it up, make it safe, make it, uh, you know, so that you can uh, just keep it on your shelf, and then later on you would take a knife and you would just tap that thing and break the, the, the wax, uh, the paraffin, and, and it would not be ready to eat. This is exactly what it doesn't mean. <laughs> Even though you could make the analogy that we are protected by the Holy Spirit, that He that He He keeps things away from us, He does this, He and He truly does. But that's not the idea that we're looking into right now. The idea that we are kept, being kept fresh for God uh, may be true, but it's not what this means right now. A seal 
is some type of verifiable guarantee. Now, we could verify the contents of containers with seals. Like, for example, electronically, an email is a container that has text. And so if I sent you an email, I could digitally sign it. That would be like a digital seal. Now, you may not know anything about computers or IT, but when you digitally sign something, that means that you are guaranteeing that the contents came from you. And I'm not going to get into the, to the, to the details of it, but it is, it is effective. If you receive an email that has a signature from someone, it's, they've gone through the proper um, authority to create a digital hash and then creates an email that guarantees that it came from you. Well, that might be a little bit difficult for some to understand, but there are other ways that contents of containers can be verified. When I was a young man, I worked on the docks of, uh, you know, of Roadway Express. They're, they they travel across the country, uh, tractor trailers filled with freight and so on. And when a tractor trailer would back into my bay, I would get my forms out. I'd look at the at the you know the back of the truck, the door that's there, and it would be sealed with a small aluminum metal strip with a number on it. They would just wrap it around the the, the lock, and they would insert it in such a way that you couldn't open it up unless you broke it. That's the only way you could get into it. You'd have to break the seal. They're not hard to break. You can just put a pencil in and just twist it around and break these seals off. They're not designed to protect the contents of that trailer, but they are designed to prove that the door was never opened. See, that's the idea. I would then look at the number on the seal, go to my paper, look at the manifest, and verify that the numbers were the same. And then if they were the same, I would sign it. I would sign, I have looked at this, the seal is not broken. No one has opened this door since the last time someone closed it. That means that it may have come from Seattle, it may have come from Miami, wherever it came from, no one opened that door. And it, and it was verified. So that's one way. Now we've been doing this for years and years. The human race has always wanted to have the way of verifying the contents of a container. Back in the day, you would have jars of clay and you could put expensive spices in them, or wine, or whatever you wanted to transport from one place to another. Well, what would stop someone from just stealing these, putting water in them, or something cheap, and then sealing it back up? Well, the way they would do this is that they would put a cloth over the top of the mouth of the jar, and then wrap a string or a rope around it, and they would tie it up. But the loose ends of the string or the rope, they would take and, and pour some soft clay on it. And then they would take a seal that had an image and they would press that into the clay, and it would leave an image, and it would get hard again. Then the only way you could untie that string is to break that seal. And then if someone received a container that had a broken seal on it, they immediately would say, well, wait, I can't guarantee the contents of this. I'm not going to pay you. And so they would look at it very closely. And this was one way that the contents of containers could be verified from one place to another. So. This idea of a seal is not new. It's as old as the ages. If you would recall, we would, uh, if you read through the book of Daniel, that Daniel had some enemies. When he was praying, his enemies would accuse him to Darius the king, and Darius was tricked into making a law that you were not allowed to pray to anyone else. And so when he was, when, they, when the, uh, the Daniel's enemies witnessed him praying, 
they they had a plan to have him thrown or how shall we say just you know executed and so when it was time that Darius said I guess I have to follow through with the law after all I made a law and I took it and I put my signet ring on it I turned it into a law I have to obey it and then he took Daniel put him into a den and then he sealed it with the same signet ring so that he put his seal upon it and no one could open it. No one knew what was happening in that cave other than Daniel and the lions and the Lord. It, no one knew. They had to wait till the seal was opened. And then they looked and what did the king say? He said, are you okay? The, the den was sealed. No one could get into it. So that's one way of verifying the contents. We knew that it was God that saved Daniel is by his hand alone. There was another incident that was famous in history, which I think that we're all familiar with, if you would remember, that when our Lord was crucified, many of his false accusers, the Pharisees, they claimed that, uh, that he pretended that he would uh, that he'd make false claims, that he would rise again from the grave. And so he, they pleaded with Pilate to prevent Christ from having his body stolen. And so Pilate said, well, I'll tell you what, you go and make it as secure as you can. I'll give some soldiers, and you may make sure that it's safe. And then the scripture says in Matthew 27, so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, I don't know who, whose seal it was. It could have been a Roman seal, but it also could have been a seal from the Sanhedrin. Whichever it was, somebody put some type of device on it that had an emblem that represented either the Sanhedrin or the Roman government, and no one was allowed to open it up. Either the Sanhedrin had to do it or the Roman government had to do it. No one else was allowed to do it. And if the seal had been broken, they would say, hey, something's wrong here. They didn't realize that it could be opened from the inside, you see. And so this tomb was sealed to make sure that the contents would not be disturbed without detection. So a seal is something that can verify the contents of something. But the seal is also a verifiable authorization. It can be for an authorization of a law or an edict. In ancient times, sometimes a ruler would not know the language of another group or you know the, the languages and the, and the ability for them to convey uh, written transmissions were limited. And so uh, a ruler may put an image of himself someplace. Nebuchadnezzar may put an image of himself on an outlying territory that he conquered, and then he would have an inscription of who he was and what he demanded. And so if you would go and find this image, the people that lived there, they would say, well, there's an image of the man who says he's our boss, and it says here, this is what we have to do. Now you may say, well, I don't understand how that works. Well, it's an edict. It's a law. Now you may say, well, how do I? I didn't know that I had to pay any tax. Well, the military would come and they say, you see that right there? That's my boss. That's your boss. Now hand it over. <laughs> you know, it had to do with the with authenticating the authority of what was to be done. And it it was for edicts and for uh, for laws of that time. Now, in the Middle Ages, this was very, very popular. Uh, when I went to England about 20 years ago, my wife and I went to the British Museum and we saw a, a genuine papal bull 
Now, I don't know if you, what the, if you know what that means. It's not a, a, a paper mache bowl or <laughs> nothing like that. It, a papal bull is an edict that's been declared by the Pope. And it, would, it was written on a large document, but at the bottom of the document was this huge blob of wax that had, had a seal pressed upon it with real long ribbons attached to it. Now, it's an intricate seal. I believe that the seals at that time that came from the Pope had, uh, had an image of what they thought Peter and Paul looked like on one side and on the other side, and had the image of the uh, ruling Pope at that time. But this was to verify that this document came from the Vatican, from the Pope. And so the word bull is, you know, we shouldn't play with that word. It doesn't mean anything other than it means to, to boil or to make soft. And sometimes a seal was made out of wax if it was kind of a, an important document, but not, not that important. But if it was more important, they would take some lead and they would melt the lead and take that same seal and press that seal into it, attach it to the document. Now, if the document was really important, they would melt down some gold and make that same image. But the idea behind it is that this seal that they looked at they could verify this came from the Pope. And everything that was written on the document upon which this seal was given was to be adhered to, and you could guarantee that it was from the Pope. That's the idea. We still use this today. There's, it's not an uncommon thing. Many businesses and many corporations and even county governments and states and countries, they have their own seal. You've seen the great seal of the state of Florida, right? I mean, and many people, if you, if you go down... And you say, I would like to uh, take a look at uh, my automobile title. It'll have the seal of the state, you know, the great state of Florida upon that. But when it comes to governments talking with other governments, they want to know that they're actually dealing with someone that has the authority to talk to them. Because there might be declarations of war involved. There might be treaties between these countries. They want to make sure that the authorities that are there speak for the ones that actually have the authority to, to do these deals. And so declarations of war will have documents with the seal of the U.S. government on it or whatever government's involved. Any type of peace treaties, any type of trade treaties, any of these things that have to do with great authorities in this country or in this world will have this type of verification of who is in authority and whether these things are true or not. Our marriage licenses, also automobile titles, property deeds, contracts that, that deal with large sums of money, you know, they'll many times will have a seal on it. And if you have to have a document that's witnessed by someone, you'll have someone with a little seal and they'll put their seal, they'll sprinkle some uh, powder on it and maybe even press and images raised upon it. It's the idea that these things are official. It is not an uncommon thing. Throughout history, it has been very, shall we say, vogue for popular or shall we say powerful people to have their own personal signet ring. A signet ring says that that family or that person have the authority to, to say or to do whatever they're, they're doing. Many ancient kings had their own official business, such as Darius. Now, tradition tells us that King Solomon also had a ring that had... Uh, an engraved image of two cherubims facing each other that represented the presence of God. I don't know if that's true or not. That's, that's just tradition. But the idea that kings have seals 
to make their edicts official is a very, very common thing. And that is why we have the type of imagery and metaphors in the scriptures that uses this type of imagery. So, when it comes to us understanding the book of the Revelation, because the next vision we have Christ handed a scroll, and it cannot be opened by anyone unless they have unless they're authorized to open it up. That seal will determine who can open it up. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to our scripture, and we'll read something like this, that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, this is a metaphor. The Holy Spirit isn't going to take uh, a real visible image and press it upon our bodies or, or even upon our minds. The metaphor here is to show us that with the seal, and you have to think, well, what kind of seal is it? It shows that we are owned by God. God has the authority to put his seal upon us. And what this seal looks like, we'll get to in a few minutes. Just be patient with that. But God has the authority to tell the world and anyone who sees us that he owns us. Now, the question is, how do you see that seal? Who can see it? And where is it? Well, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit upon our hearts. And who can see that? Well, God alone. However, it is possible to see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in everyone's life. It is possible to know, and when you meet a person, that the Word of God is in their heart and mind, and their hands are occupied with what they do. And so the seal of God is more seen by, shall we say, the inclinations of the heart and spirit. Because this is the type of image the Holy Spirit is pressing upon us. Now, with that in mind, God has the authority to present to us as his, uh, his object that he owns to his son for him to have as a bride. The idea of having this image pressed into a softened material is also an important part of the metaphor. Remember, this is a metaphor. This is a this is a way of communicating to us that God wants us to, to use something that we already know, and he wants us to transfer that knowledge to learn a spiritual lesson. So, well, we're going to do a little bit of a mini-study here in the idea of what an image is. Okay? Remember that we're dealing with words that will slip in and out of metaphors and in and out of typology and so on, but God is teaching us a literal truth by this. So, the very first use of the word image will come from the scriptures in the book of Genesis in the creation of man. So let me read them to you in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let us have dominion over the flesh of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over the creeping things that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, this can open up quite a variety of different discussions. Because we know that the scriptures teach us that God is not a man. He does not have limbs. He does not have physical parts. He does not have feet or legs. He does not have a face. However, when we are given those words that we are created in the image of God... Or even that we can say, you know, Moses spoke to God face to face. We have to understand that when we speak to a human being face to face, 
we're trying to say we can communicate with him from heart to heart. And so when we're made in the image of God, it cannot be that it is a physical likeness, but it is a likeness of spirit and it is a likeness of moral um, uh, virtue. We were made in uprightness like God. Now, from there, I want you to continue with me through the scriptures. And we're going to go to the next part of the scriptures in, in Exodus chapter 20, when it refers to the image and how it refers to God. In Exodus 20, verse 4, we read this. You shall not make to yourself carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that in earth beneath beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Now, that commandment goes on to say, you will not bow yourself down to these images. You'll not have an image that you can see with your eye because God is not those type of things. God is a God who is spirit. That's what our Lord said. That's how, that's how the, the Hebrews were to learn about who God was. Now, I'm going to give you an example of how the Hebrew mindset was trained in this way because the Apostle Paul took that very same idea. And when he went to Athens and saw on, uh, 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 I, I believe it was uh, Mount, what is it, Acropolis, where they, where they had all the images and so on. In Acts chapter 17, I'm going to read there, and I want you to listen to the words and keep in mind what is Paul saying concerning the image of who God is. This is Paul speaking to, these, to, the, um, to the Athens who were idol worshipers. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. And I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. No doubt when he walked by these idols, there were offerings there with food and fruit and everything. And he's saying, God doesn't need these fruits. The real God doesn't need you to feed him. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the earth, uh, on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And so we can see what we have here is an interesting development of how God wants us to receive truth and that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And there is an image involved, but it's not an image that we can see with our eyes. Now let's continue on with Scripture. Having been taught in the Old Testament and the New Testament that God is not to be imagined as other false gods are represented by an image that can be seen with the eye or touched by the hand, we are now presented with a doctrine that Christ is the expressed image. 
He is the Word of God. He is the incarnate Word of God. He is the express image of God. Let me read the Scriptures to you. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. So here we have an interesting, shall we say, contrast and comparison. In the Old Testament, the law says, don't make these images and bow down to them. But here we have Christ incarnate with what? The Holy Spirit gave birth to a man. But within this man, he was God. He was truly God. The expressed image of God. Let's continue with what Paul is going to tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, he's saying, just like we used to be like Adam, we shall also bear the image of a man of heaven. He's saying we shall be like Christ. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now the teaching of that passage has to do with us being conformed to Christ. And as we look at the Word of God, it acts like a mirror. And as we see ourselves, we become, as we become loving of Christ and obeying the Word of God, we become more like Christ, being changed from one type of glory to another type of glory, the better type of glory. In Colossians verse, chapter 1, we read this. Right, let's go to 2 Corinthians first. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, don't confuse the idea that Jesus Christ as a man is an image of God. Jesus Christ is God because he is God in heart. He is the Spirit. He is the Holy Spirit. He is God from heaven made flesh. He is the image of God. And in Colossians chapter 1, we read this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of the creation. Do you see the contrast there? He is the image of something that cannot be seen. The image of the invisible God. Now that's the type of image that's going to be pressed upon us. That's the type of image that God says, I have my seal. The word itself changes people. The word is pressed upon the heart of men. God's spirit is teaching us. And as we learn, it's being pressed upon the softened, changed heart of man. We used to have hearts of stone. He gives us now hearts of flesh to be changed by the Word of God. And as we are changed, we are being conformed into the image of Christ. Colossians 3. Do not lie with one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed, and the knowledge after the image of its Creator. So, how does this apply to the idea that we are being sealed by the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit applies the truth of the Word of God to our hearts. As we adore God who saves us from our sin, and as we follow the Word which guides us, we are changed from one type of glory to a better type of glory to become more like Christ. So the metaphor is this. God the Father presses the signet of the Holy Spirit into the new heart of the Christian. This is leaving an expressed image that conforms us to be more like His Son 
the only begotten Son of the Lord Jesus Christ in heart and spirit. This seal is also a declaration of ownership. It is the seal that says, I have the authority to own him, and he is mine. Look at him. He looks like my son. This seal is also a guarantee that the contents of this earthly vessel will be verifiably preserved until we are glorified on that great day. The Holy Spirit is that guarantee himself, our earnest or the down payment or the pledge to pay in full. Do you see? The Holy Spirit within us. He is that pledge to have to have the uh, entire uh, uh, to be glorified in God. So only God can put that on His people. No one else has this seal. If you see someone that displays the fruit of the Holy Spirit, only God can do that. He is the only one with that seal. He's the only one that can give the Holy Spirit. Only Christ can say, I will send a comforter to you. I will send him. I will come to you. And he will abide in you. And he will be in you. Out of you, there should be rivers of flowing water, of living water coming out of you. Only Christ and only God can do that. This is Christ's realm. This is his authority alone. And that he can place that seal upon a human heart. It cannot be done by preachers. It cannot be done by popes. It cannot be done by the government. It cannot be done by the beast or by the false prophet. It cannot be done by anyone. It is by the hand of God. It is by his own hand. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's metaphorically speaking. Because we know he doesn't have a hand, do we? Mm -hmm. Because it is by the seal that is has the image of Jesus Christ. And that image is holiness, mm -hmm. righteousness, justice, mercy, grace, mm -hmm. long-suffering, joy, all the fruits of the Spirit that you will read in the book of Galatians. All those things. Christ alone has that power, natural authority, and has that moral authority. Mm -hmm. Only He can do it. God cannot put the image of Christ upon a sinner who is not repented. He will not do that. It is part of the repentance that is there. There is the proof, the vindication, the verification that a person has had his sins atoned for because only Christ can have that moral authority to do it. He's the one that died for our sin, rose from the dead, and we were in him when he raised from the dead. And then that seal comes upon us, and now the word of God takes form within our spirits, and we become like Christ. And only he can do that. Only he has that power. Only he has that authority. And he's ruling and doing this. Now, men may be ruled by the laws of God. You can go into a courtroom, and it says, Thou shalt not kill. And people can be brought in before the judge, and if they're guilty of murder, he can throw them into prison. In that way, Christ is ruling over this world with a rod of iron. But I'll tell you what, he rules in the hearts of his people through the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between the citizens of this world and the citizens of that world, of the world we live in. Mm -hmm. Christ rules within us, and we say within ourselves, we cannot hate. We cannot do these things. We cannot kill. Why would far be it from us that we should do that? Because our God disdains that. And it is evil. And therefore, 
the law is written upon our hearts on hearts of flesh. But for the world, they may know that going against this law is wrong. But it's like that um, illustration that was given years ago by, by I, believe is, I believe it was um, Plato that did this. In Plato's Republic, there's one of his books that he wrote. He made an illustration that worked like this. This is going to be a, a bit of a long illustration, so kind of stick with me here. His point was this. If men can get away with sinning, they will. But Plato doesn't talk like that. He talks like this. If men can break the law and know that they'll never get caught, they would be a fool not to do it. That's his point. And it works like this. There was a man by the name of... Uh, oh, gee, I forget his name. <laughs> this is, But I, I, he was... He became the king of Lydia. I'll just call him the king of Lydia. He started off as a shepherd, and he wanted to sell sheep to the king that was current, king of Lydia. And when he came in, he was spurned, and he was you know, thrown away, that is, pushed away. But he saw the king's wife, and he really liked his wife. He really thought she was a good-looking woman. And so while he was out into his field, he discovered a cave, went into this cave, found a statue with a man on this was standing on a horse, and on that horse was a man with a gold ring. And when he took the ring off of that statue's hand and put it on himself, he disappeared and became invisible. And so he thought within himself, I'm going to get back at that king. He went back to the king, put the ring on, slipped into the castle, undetected, murdered the king, wooed the wife, married her, became the king. Why? Because he said, I can get away with this. I can be invisible. And who wouldn't do it if you could do it? Now, when it comes to this world, men can be ruled by the law, but if they think they can get away with it, they will. They must be ruled with a rod of iron. They must be given the law through the, the means of this world, through governments that have been ordained by God. Through, you know, God does not give this authority to those in vain. They have that authority. We must be submitting ourselves to the governments that be, just like it says in Romans chapter 13. But I'll tell you that he does not rule us that way. He does not rule us with a rod of iron. He rules us with a shepherd's staff. He rules us with the kind words from the Holy Spirit saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And we walk in his path in this way. But with the rest of the world, he rules them with a rod of iron. So only Christ has the authority to put this seal upon a, upon a person. Now let me tell you, this cannot be counterfeited and it cannot be undone. You cannot have God put a seal upon a person and then he can say, well, I, I can fake it, I can pretend. There is no possible way for anyone to imitate this or counterfeit this to the eyes of God. God knows. It cannot be removed and it cannot be undone and it cannot be faked. God knows. God knows upon whom is sealed. So, with this, I'm going to wrap this up a little bit with some scripture here. The scripture clearly teaches that the saved person is sealed with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you about six verses to listen to. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, we read this. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ 
and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It's exactly what the metaphor is teaching. In Ephesians chapter 1, we just um, this is the text that we are looking at. Let me read it again to you. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And in the latter end of that chapter, uh, of that uh, epistle, in chapter 4, we also read this. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do you see the analogy there? You were sealed until that day. That day is when you're going to verify, oh, the contents are completely untouched, completely intact, completely perfected. And in 2 Timothy, we read this. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the Christ of the Lord depart from iniquity. So, with what we have stated tonight, with what we have learned from the Scriptures, we can be sure of these two things. God will surely conform us to the image of His own Son. God will deliver us to Christ as His own bride. That's going to be done. It's going to be sealed that way. And when Christ goes to open these seals, it's going to accomplish that all the way to the end. Now, how do I know this? I know this by reading the Word, and it tells me, In Him you also, when you heard the Word of truth and the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we are acquired until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of His glory. And so, from this point forward, I want you to remember this lesson so that when we continue to study in the Apocalypse, that you can remember these things. When we study the second vision of the Apocalypse, you will see Christ is the only one worthy to open the seals of the scroll that was delivered to Him. He is the only one and if you'll recall, if you've read this, you'll know that when they were looking for the one who was able to open and they couldn't find anyone, John cried, you know, with, you know, he was just, he was just in despair. There seems to have been an understanding that if no one was worthy to open the seals, we are undone. We would be undone. There is moral authority attached to opening those seals. And there's more authority attached to the sealing of our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Christ alone is naturally and morally authorized to do all the things contained in those sealed books. And so, to this, to Him who loved us and freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priest to our God and the Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your truth. We want to thank you that you have made this truth to set us free, and that our hearts shall be gathered together on that day, and we shall be given the fullness of your Spirit, that we shall inherit the new heavens and new earth, of which you alone, God, are the very center of it. You are our great, exceedingly 
great reward. Mm -hmm. So, Father, we look forward to that day. And even so, Lord Jesus, come.